There are many tales of survival on the high seas, but when you take a luxury cruise, the furthest thing from your mind are thoughts regarding survival. Cruise lines cater to your every whim, from dining choices, entertainment, and creature comforts. Take, for example, Elizabeth Weed Schutz. She was traveling first class on a magnificent ocean liner, one of the finest and most opulent ships ever built. While Elizabeth was not one to afford such luxurious travel and accommodations, she was employed as a governess to the 16-year-old daughter of a wealthy businessman. Elizabeth accompanied the businessman's wife, Edith Graham, and her daughter, Margaret, on a European vacation. Elizabeth was 40 years old and was a teacher by trade. She had taught at private schools, and when a well-paying job as governess to a teenage girl was posted, she decided for a slightly different career shift. Attending to one teenage girl seemed appealing, but her charge, Margaret, never connected with Elizabeth. To put it bluntly, Margaret was not fond of her governess, and she thought Elizabeth lacked competence. It could have been a dream job, but the friction between the two indicated to Elizabeth that this job would not last long. The vacation and travel had gone well, considering the friction between governess and pupil. Five days previously, the three travelers boarded the ship at the European port to return home. The return voyage was pretty uneventful, except for a near collision with another vessel that had broken loose from its mooring. The upcoming events, though, would eclipse their life's adventures. It was Sunday night, and they were not scheduled to arrive back to the States until Wednesday. The evening was exceptionally frigid, and Elizabeth and Margaret were sharing a first-class cabin while Mrs. Graham had her own first-class room. When they returned to their state rooms from a concert in the Palm Room and then walking the decks afterward toward the frosty evening, the rooms were cold, a biting, bitter cold, lacking the freshness of the outside air. Elizabeth turned on the electric stove and dressed for bed. Margaret was pacing around the small room, complaining she was hungry. Margaret finally pressed the call button above her berth to summon a steward. When the steward arrived, she placed an order for a chicken sandwich. By this time, Elizabeth had gotten beneath the covers of her bed, but was still chilled. She got up and turned up the heat to high, and by the time Margaret's sandwich arrived, the room was nice and cozy. By now, it was pretty late, just past the 11th half hour. Margaret sat down to eat her sandwich when the ship began to quiver from deep within the liner. The quivering went on for long seconds, and fear slowly crept into Elizabeth. She slid out of her bed, suddenly frightened by the strange sensation. Looking over at Margaret, she realized the young girl was terrified. Her hands were shaking so much, the sandwich came apart and fell to the table. What possibly could cause such a great ship to tremble so violently throughout its entire hull? Someone knocked at the door rapidly. Elizabeth sprang to the door and opened it quickly to see Mrs. Graham, gesturing to them outside. Come quickly to my cabin. An iceberg has just passed our window. I know we have just struck one. There was no confusion and no sense of urgency. People were coming from their cabins and chatting about the incident. 
Elizabeth saw an officer coming down the companionway and asked what had happened and if there was any danger. He replied, none so far as I know, with the utmost politeness and without any display of distress. Elizabeth and Margaret, though, couldn't help but be highly concerned, alarmed, and scared as they watched the officer continue down the companionway and enter a stateroom. They listened intently for any more information. What they heard confirmed their worst fears. Muffled yet distinctly clear, they overheard the officer's statement, We can keep the water out for a while. Panic began to blossom up from within. Elizabeth and Margaret quickly dressed with what they could quickly don. Rushing out the door of their stateroom, they hurried to where Mrs. Graham was emerging from her cabin. Rushing up the sun deck where the nearest lifeboats were berthed, they passed by people quietly, nervously laughing and joking. But the ship was oddly silent and still. No engines were running. The vessel was motionless. When they passed by the palm room where they listened to the concert earlier, music had begun to play again, perhaps to soothe everyone and project the image that nothing was amiss. As they headed up the staircases to the sun deck, though, the mood changed. No one was laughing. The one-way stream to the top deck emerged to waiting stewards, holding pale white life preservers and passing them along to passengers. The stewards' faces were solemn and almost as white as the flotation devices they held. The crew was wasting no time loading the lifeboats. Two male passengers escorted Elizabeth, Margaret, and Mrs. Graham to lifeboat number three. Mr. Washington Augustus Roebling was an engineer who just completed a tour of Europe with a race car he designed and built. Roebling was a kind gentleman whom Elizabeth had become acquainted with during the voyage. The second man, Mr. Howard Brown Case, was a marketing director of an oil company. Born in Rochester, New York, he now resided in England and likely was on a business trip to the States. The two men assisted the crew loading the lifeboats quickly and efficiently, guiding women toward and into the boats. They performed this duty almost merrily, assuring the women, you will be back with us on the ship again soon. Roebling and Case guided Elizabeth, Margaret, and Mrs. Graham into the tiny lifeboat hanging 75 feet above the black, icy waters below. The boat was quite crowded, and while it was nearly filled and beginning to descend, a few men jumped in, perhaps desperate to escape the fate of the massive liner, but likely added to assist with rowing duties. But Roebling and Case did not board. They stayed behind and continued to help with their newly assigned tasks. Elizabeth thought there were 36 people on board but there could have been as few as 32, or as many as 40. There was ample room for at least 20 more people, but the boat began its descent into darkness. It was 12.55 in the a.m. The boat Elizabeth found herself in was a typical wooden lifeboat, standard on cruise ships. Two other boats had already launched, and there was confusion among those men lowering the boat. No one appeared in charge, and the men were yelling and shouting. One rope seemed to be stuck, so one end of the boat lowered faster than the other, resulting in an increasing pitch. 
At one point, Elizabeth feared they would all be hurled into the icy black water. Finally, though, the boat evened out and touched onto the surface of the water. The men took out the oars and began to row away from the doomed liner. The finality of abandoning the ship brought dread to the passengers, and the biting cold increased their distress and discomfort. At first, they stayed close to the ship. It was improbable that such a great vessel was mortally wounded. Could this perhaps be standard operating procedures following an abundance of caution? Wouldn't they be much safer on board? As the minutes passed by, though, it became apparent that the ship's outline was growing smaller. Lights began to flicker and extinguish near the bow. The men, unnerved by the disappearing lights, pulled harder on the oars to gain distance between the sinking ship. Suction and swell were the chief concerns, but the men were inexperienced in rowing, and the bitter cold caused them to lose hold of the oars and frequently rub their hands together or place them in their armpits in a nearly useless attempt to keep warm. Two oars were lost overboard, and they did not try to retrieve them. George Moore, able seaman, was in charge and ordered all aboard to search underneath their seats for a lantern. A thorough search did not reveal a lantern nor any other supplies, causing further alarm among those in the little boat. Quietly, Elizabeth and everyone else in the boat watched the outline of the great liner slowly disappear beneath the sea. Every once in a while, other lifeboats could be glimpsed into the distance. Some of the other boats had lanterns, and it was odd that they did not. They watched the great ship for just over two hours, the slant increasing and lights slowly flickering out, working their way toward the stern. Barking dogs could be heard in the distance. <coughs> An odd sound given the circumstances. Over the next few minutes, the ship quickly disappeared into the ocean. It was incomprehensible what had happened. All was fine, cruising on a magnificent ship, and two hours and 40 minutes later, she disappeared from view. George Moore suddenly shouted to the crew, She's gone, lads. Row like hell, or we'll get the devil of a swell. Now what Elizabeth and the others in the lifeboats had heard was ghastly. In her own words, Then across the water swept that awful wail, the cry of those drowning people, and the horror, the helpless horror, the worst of all. Need it have been. During the last minutes of the sinking, many left on board, jumped over the side, or were plunged into the frigid waters. The screaming and cries for help were unbearable for those in the lifeboats. Without light, there was no way to determine precisely where the swimmers were. Strangely, they couldn't see any of the other lifeboats, save for one. Life expectancy is short in icy water. The screaming did not last for long. When it was quiet, there really was nothing left to do. If they heard another lifeboat, the men would row toward it, gathering together as if there were safety in staying together. A mother and adult daughter in Elizabeth's boat had left behind their husbands. They called out to every boat they encountered, asking if either was on board. The awful answer was always no. 
but they never gave up hope. Everyone huddled together for warmth. The night got colder and colder as they approached dawn, and most were regretful of their clothing choices before boarding the lifeboat. It seemed so long ago. The two men who jumped into the lifeboat as it was beginning its descent kept lighting cigars, much to the dismay of some of the women on board. The smoke added to their discomfort, and the continued use of matches worried those who thought they might be needed later on. The men ignored their complaints and continued smoking. It slowly became lighter. As it grew brighter, they could see lifeboats scattered across the sea. Someone in the boat shouted, A light! A ship! Elizabeth could barely bring herself to look, not willing to be disappointed. Previous cries about a light had been heard from other lifeboats, but now it was clear a ship was sailing toward them. The passengers rummaged about to find something to burn to signal the oncoming ship. A piece of paper, a newspaper, a straw hat. It became clear they were being rescued. The vessel arrived and began the slow process of picking up survivors from the lifeboats. Elizabeth's boat was the fifth or sixth rescued. When the lifeboats pulled up beside the ship, a sling was passed down, and each passenger got in to be hoisted up to an opening and pulled into safety. When it was Elizabeth's turn and she was secured, she could barely grasp the rope due to her numb hands and fingers. Finally, she was drawn into the ship and a blanket was quickly draped around her. Someone placed a hot cup of tea in her hands, and she sipped on it, feeling immediately better. Elizabeth encouraged others to partake, but the overwhelming sense of loss and shock rendered most survivors inconsolable. Women, anxious for news about their husbands, asked about only to always hear that they had not arrived. By 8.30 a.m., the rescuers picked up all the survivors in the lifeboats. The new hosts did all they could to make the survivors comfortable. But the tragic loss and the magnitude of the disaster rendered most grief-stricken and devastated. There was nothing left to do at the disaster site. The ship reversed course and headed toward the original destination, New York City. You probably suspected relatively early that today's episode is discussing the tragic events of April 15, 1912, when the Titanic sank after striking an iceberg and sinking in two hours and 40 minutes. The accident claimed over 1,500 lives, with only 705 people surviving the disaster. All three women in our story survived the disaster. Elizabeth would not stay employed with the Grams for long after the sinking, but moved in with her sister and continued to teach. Mrs. Graham returned home to her estate in Connecticut. Margaret went home with her mother and married within two years. Her husband was a senior executive at a famous law firm, and they had three children. Margaret passed away in 1976. Washington Roebling and Howard Case the gentlemen who assisted the women, and many more, into lifeboats, did not survive. They stayed behind on the ocean liner until the end. There is no record that their bodies were ever recovered. If they were, they would have been labeled as unidentified, 
Another passenger saw Case on deck just prior to the ship's sinking and suggested to him that they jump. Case responded, My dear fellow, I wouldn't think of quitting the ship. Why, she'll swim for a week. Case then lit a cigarette and continued walking the deck. A British inquiry into the sinking was widely publicized. Portions of that inquiry, however, were not. The discussion of lifeboat lights brought up a disturbing occurrence common among those lifeboats, a lack of lanterns on board each boat. Crew members testified to the captain's determination to provide all lifeboats with lights before launching, and many crew members claimed all boats went out with lamps. One crew member testified he was the individual who went below decks four times to provide the necessary lanterns for all lifeboats. In her own published account after the disaster, Elizabeth insisted her lifeboat did not have a lantern. Many denied they had no lantern, yet a top officer of the Titanic claimed to have seen Titanic's lifeboat lanterns hanging on their rescue ship after the tragedy. It's been theorized that each lifeboat extinguished its lamps when the Titanic went down and hundreds of people were in the water. No one wanted to risk capsizing their lifeboat to save desperate, frantic swimmers in the frigid Atlantic Ocean. The swimmers themselves could not see the lifeboats in the clear, dark, moonless night, so they had no point of reference in which to swim towards safety. You see, there had been reports of lights on the boat before the sinking and afterward, but strangely, no lights were visible during the miserable 20 minutes people were forced into the cold sea. Only one or possibly two lifeboats actively went back to pick up swimmers. When the screaming and cries for help subsided, though, lifeboat lamps slowly flickered on. Each person on the Titanic has a different account of the catastrophe, with their own personal interactions with fellow passengers and crew many of whom did not survive. We are pleased to tell the story of Elizabeth Schutz, along with her pupil Margaret and her employer Mrs. Edith Gran. If you want to learn more about the Titanic, its passengers and crew members, along with individual stories as fascinating as what you heard today, you can find a wealth of information at encyclopedia-titanica.org. Ian Scotto narrated today's episode. If you enjoy In the Wild, why don't you check out our other podcast, Obscurities, hosted by famed horror actress and director Debbie Rashawn. Obscurities tells the tales of our world's most unusual events, odd objects, and obscurities. You can find it at Apple Podcasts or any of your favorite podcast platforms. Thank you for listening to In the Wild. Make sure to hit the subscribe button and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts.